We glorify you, Lord. We magnify you. You are the best thing that has ever happened to us. We have not been nearly as faithful as you have been to us. And we declare today that you are our steadfast rock. You are our salvation. In this crazy world that we're living in, you bring stability. You bring hope. You bring peace. You bring salvation. You bring clarity. We give you praise today for who you are in your character. You are perfection. We aren't. You are. And we declare today that we are your people. And not because we've done anything good or righteous, but because of your faithfulness and your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross. We talk about it all the time, but we don't want to take it for granted. You did not know any sin, and yet you became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. And we declare today that you are bigger and better than anything that we are facing at this moment. And we look forward to the hope of heaven where one day we shall see you face to face and we rejoice that we get to taste a little bit of it today as we gather together as your people, as your family, as your church. Thank you, our brother, for your goodness to us. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Welcome to church today, Emmanuel. It is great to see you. Welcome if you're part of the online campus. You are just as much a part of us online as you are in the building. We love you. One of the most dramatic moments of World War II did not occur on the battlefield, it occurred on a ship. On September 2nd, 1945, at three minutes to nine, a Japanese delegation of military people and politicians stepped onto the USS Missouri and signed the documents that ended World War II. For me, what was most interesting in that historic event was not the signing of the documents, it was something highly symbolic. There was a Japanese vice admiral who stood before Douglas MacArthur, who was the allied commander responsible for the ending of World War II. He was the person in charge of that ceremony. And the Japanese vice admiral stuck out his hand to Douglas MacArthur, and MacArthur wouldn't shake his hand. Was MacArthur being rude? No. He wouldn't do it until the vice admiral took out his samurai sword and handed it over to MacArthur. MacArthur took it, and then he stuck out his hand to shake the vice admiral's hand. Why did he do it? In military tradition, whenever there is a surrender, it's symbolic to surrender your sword. 
to your enemy as a sign of, I desire peace. And so what that vice admiral was saying is, on behalf of the Japanese people, we surrender and we desire no more hostilities. We want peace. We're in a series of messages over the last few weeks called Better For It, Overcoming the Trauma of COVID. Uh, COVID. We've all been traumatized, right? We've all been traumatized on some level. And there are always six responses to trauma. The first three everybody goes through. The last three you have to choose to go through. The first is shock. Then there's sorrow. Then there's struggle. The last three are surrender, sanctification, and service. And today is about how you find peace through surrender and how God makes you better for it in this process we call sanctification. Sanctification is all that God does in you in the process of your growth as a Christian. So turn with me in your Bibles to one of the greatest passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that has to do with surrendering to get to peace. It's 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 16 through 24. Surrender is about letting go, laying down, and relinquishing. If you do not, say, if you do not surrender, you stay stuck in your difficult event, and it defines you. Everybody has bad things happen to them. You have three choices when bad things happen to you. You can either let it destroy you, define you, or develop you. Development is all about sanctification. Would you stand, please, as we look into God's Word together from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 16 through 24. We touched on this story a few weeks ago. Now I want to delve deeper into it. It's the story of King David who lost a child and the only person he had to blame was himself. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him he wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him that his child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, he is. Then David got up from the ground. He washed himself. He put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and he worshiped the Lord. That is so odd, isn't it? And yet, that was David's first response to worship. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and you refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. Basically, what they're saying is, we don't get you. Will you please tell us what you're doing? 
David replied, I fasted and I wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. Holy Spirit, there are so many things in Scripture that are challenging to understand because we're culturally so different from the context of the Bible. And yet human nature never changes. So would you reveal to us today what you want to say? Make it so personal that every person watching online, every person in the building listening these next few moments will say the Holy Spirit, it was like he was speaking just to me. Only you can do that. And I'm asking that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I cannot imagine losing a child and it being my fault. I've shared with you before that Holly and I lost a child. Some of you have lost children much older than what our child was. So you have history. Some of you lost a child when they were in their 20s. And so you have a background, a history of that child. But I cannot imagine as maddening as that is, taking responsibility and saying, it was because of me that my child was lost. At that moment, it seems to me that David had a choice. Would he let the death of his own son destroy him, define him, or develop him? And that's the great choice for all of us. Will we be stuck? Or will we move on? David took a posture of surrender, and he did three things during that time period that got him to the pathway of peace. And these are the same things that you and I do through the help of the Holy Spirit to get us to move on. The first is, we need to be able to accept what we cannot change. I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live, but why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? Are you familiar with the serenity prayer? Not the Seinfeld serenity now, the serenity prayer. It's shared at most AA meetings. Did you know it was written by a pastor, Reinhold Niebuhr? Reinhold Niebuhr is the most significant theologian in the 20th century in America. Did you know that there's more to the serenity prayer than what we think it to be? Most of us can say it. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the serenity prayer. Except that's not all of it. 
There's a comma at the end of to know the difference. Comma, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, taking this world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right. If I surrender to your will. When something really bad happens, our first response is usually denial. No, I can't believe it. I just saw them yesterday. They're gone? Then there's typically anger. That's the struggle part. By the way, men and women deal with anger differently. I'm going to give a generalization. It's usually true, but you may be opposite. Generally, when women are sorrowful and struggling, they typically go inward and struggle with depression. One out of every five women are in depression at any given moment. One out of every 10 men are in depression at any given moment. When a woman is overwhelmed by sorrow, she uses her anger and goes inward. When a man is overwhelmed by sorrow, he just gets angry outwardly. So over this past year and a half during COVID, if you're living with an angry man, he's a depressed man. The more anger you see rising inside of you, it's usually because I cannot control my environment and I'm just ticked off. But eventually, we move beyond shock and sorrow and struggle to acceptance. That's where surrender comes in. You need to accept what you cannot change. Now, accepting something we cannot change is actually confusing. For example, accepting does not mean that you stop caring. David did not stop caring for his son even though his son had died. You don't stop caring for your loved one even though they've been 10 years past. You still love them. You still care for them. You can't turn off your feelings like, like a faucet. Some of you have been divorced for a number of years, but you still care for your ex. You may be mad as anything, but that doesn't mean you don't care for them. In my 33 years of pastoral ministry, I have come to the conclusion that most people who got divorced still loved each other. They just couldn't find a way to live with each other. Accepting does not mean you stop hurting. Sometimes Christians quote and misquote Scripture. You know that passage of Scripture from 1 Thessalonians? We do not grieve. And there's lots of Christians that think that they always have to stay positive, especially in grief. Well, you know, I'm, I don't want to be a bad witness to the Lord. You know, I want to be filled with faith. And they think that if they're not positive, that they're somehow doing injustice to the gospel. But the reality is, is that a lot of Christians misquote Scripture. We do not grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. We still grieve, but our hope is still in Christ. But we still grieve. Acceptance does not mean you stop remembering. Sometimes people think that if they move on from their grief, they are dishonoring the memory of the person whom they loved. But you know, you'll never forget. At the end of August every year, Holly goes through a little bit of a dip. You know why? 
because that's when we lost our son. 35 years ago. I can count on it. She knows the day. She knows the hour. Acceptance doesn't mean that you're being disloyal. Sometimes this happens with the death of a spouse. You know, I've talked to people through the years that their spouse has died and they'll say, I'll never remarry again. You know, that sounds romantic. But I think behind sometimes there's this feeling of I don't want to be disloyal, like I'll be married to them even though they're past and I'm not married. They may take off their wedding ring or they may wear their wedding ring, but the reality is they don't want to move on because they feel like they're being disloyal. Here's my perspective. If you loved it so much the first time, why don't you honor them and be open to it the second time? Oh man, did I actually say that publicly? All I'm saying is, accepting a loss doesn't mean that you're being disloyal. Now, here's a question. What do you need to accept that's not going to happen in your life that you've been longing for it to happen? See, this is where we get all messed up in our faith. Because we hang on to things thinking that we're walking by faith when actually we're just stuck. Let me give you a couple of examples. Some of you have been waiting for 30 or 40 years to get married. You want to get married? You think you have a lot to offer. You would love, you have so much love in you. You would love to give your love to someone else and have a companion to walk through life. But after 30 or 40 years, maybe you should just think it's probably not going to happen. And what would happen if you surrendered that expectation to the Lord and said to the Lord, look, you know the desires of my heart, but I'm surrendering it to you. And I'm just going to accept the fact that I'm probably not going to be married after 30 or 40 years of wanting to be married. And here's the thing. If it happens, it's great. If it doesn't happen, I'm at peace. Some of you are living a lifestyle that you never dreamed you would live. You're taking care of your spouse And your day is very different than what you thought it would be. Or you're taking care of an aging parent. Or you never got the big promotion. Or you don't have enough in your retirement account. Or your child has gone off and is involved in a lifestyle that is dramatically different than what they were raised and what you desire for them to be. What would happen if... Instead of being stuck, you simply embraced your reality and said, I do not like it, but I surrender it to Christ, and I lay it down, and I seek his peace, and if things should change, praise the Lord, but if they don't, I'm at peace. Some of you are unequally yoked. You know what that means, right? 
you and your spouse are on different pages, spiritually, emotionally. It's literally like two ships passing in the night. What would happen if you just surrendered that to the Lord and said, look it, I'm still going to pray that we get on the same page one day, but I'm going to be at peace and live with my reality. And that doesn't mean you're not a person of faith. It just means that you're accepting what you have no control over to change. You know what COVID has taught us? We don't have nearly as much control as what we thought we had. For most of us, control was an illusion. David didn't turn off his feelings, but he did accept what he had no control over. It was over. And he came to peace. Number two, remember, acceptance and surrender doesn't mean it's the end of the story. I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. David was confident that one day he would be reunited with his son in heaven. Some people are stuck in the present because they cannot envision a future without you fill in the blank. One of the best devotional books I have ever read was by Sarah Young. You may want to just stop and zone out for a few moments while I'm still talking and go order it on Amazon. It's called Jesus Calling. I think the reason why that devotional book is so meaningful to me is that in the preface of the devotional book, she describes that she wrote it while in chronic pain over several years. And sometimes she didn't think that she could even write. And the devotional book itself is actually Jesus speaking to her. And so it's always in the first person. She says these words about the future. Your future looks uncertain and feels flimsy. That is how it should be. Secret things belong to the Lord. And future things are secret things. When you try to figure out the future, you are grasping at things that are mine, Jesus says. This, like all forms of worry, this blows my mind. This, like all forms of worry, is an act of rebellion. Doubting my promises to care for you. Whenever you find yourself worrying about the future, Jesus says, repent and return to me and I will show you the next step forward and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that. Relax and enjoy the journey in my presence, trusting me to open up the way before you as you go. Acceptance and surrender does not mean it's the end of a story. It means that one chapter has closed. We ought to mourn it. We ought to acknowledge it. We ought to accept it as a loss. But as soon as you close that chapter, guess what? Another chapter has opened. 
Lastly, David did something productive. Then David got up from the ground, he washed himself, he put on lotions, and he changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and he worshiped the Lord, and after that he returned to the palace and was served food and drink. So a few weeks ago, I'm not going to delve into it now because I already talked about it, but a few weeks ago we talked about the value of self-care. This is exactly what's going on here, right? David practiced some self-care. He took a shower, he put on some deodorant, and he changed his clothes. It says it right there in Scripture. Then he went to church. By the way, you heal in community. You never heal by yourself. You always heal in community. And then he did something else. He went to the palace and he ate a meal. Um, what's the palace? Well, the palace is the place where David lived, but it's also something else. Think White House, West Wing. It's the place where you run the kingdom. It's his private residence, but it's, all, it's his office. Is David over the trauma of losing his son? Of course not. But he's starting to move, and he's starting to get things back to normal. This is worth writing down. You don't have to stop mourning to start moving. I'm grieving, but I'm not going to stop growing. I'm going back to work. I'm going out to dinner. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to have fun with my kids. I'm going to go out with my friends. I'm going to go back to school and get another degree. I'm going to pick up a new hobby. One of the ways that we deal with difficult times is to keep moving. Notice something else. Not only did David get moving, he kept loving, even though his heart was broken. Verse 24 says, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon, loved of the Lord, Jedidiah. I got thinking about this. Sometimes I just have these weird thoughts, right? I got thinking about this. What if, what if David thought to himself, Bathsheba and I are no good together. God has cursed us. I don't want to be around her. You know, there's a 78% divorce rate among parents who have lost children. Eight out of 10 people divorce who have lost children. David could have thought, I don't even want to see you, Bathsheba, because every time I see you, I'm reminded of my own grief. But he didn't do that, did he? He kept moving. And instead of pulling away from his spouse, he leaned into her and he comforted her and she comforted him. By the way, we always think that the next child that was born to David and Bathsheba was Solomon, but that's not true. Do you know that there was three other sons that were born to David and Bathsheba after the death of this child, Solomon was the fourth. Do you know what the name of the first child is? Shamiah. Do you know what that means? God has heard me. 
The second child that David and Bathsheba had, the second son, David named him, God has heard me. And by the time he got to child number four, God loves. There's a healing process that David is going through. And he and Bathsheba went through it together. They started off wrong, but they ended up right. Mother Teresa once said, I have found a paradox. If you love until it hurts, then there can be no more hurt and only more love. I think what she's saying is, if you press into your pain with love, eventually there's just love and no more pain. Jesus is the greatest example of doing something productive in the middle of pain. We all know John 3.16. Do you know 1 John 3.16? We know what real love is because Christ gave his life for us. Jesus lived a surrendered life to God and he endured incredible pain because he loves you and me. Can you imagine Jesus up in heaven going, wow, those people down there, they're messed up. Somebody ought to do something about that. Instead, Jesus, I'm going. And Jesus takes a step into our messy world and he hangs on a cross and he endures unbelievable pain and out of that pain comes your redemption and your forgiveness and your cleansing and your righteousness. Jesus took it all on himself. He became productive in the midst of his pain. And you and I are the benefit, beneficiaries of it. Over these last uh, four weeks, I haven't given an explicit invitation to receive Christ. But today feels like a good day to do that. Whether you're online or in this room, whether you've gone to church for years or decades, or whether you're new today. St. Augustine said, God has placed a God-shaped vacuum inside of every person that only he can fill. And so if there's something inside of you that yearns to be loved and yearns to be forgiven and yearns to be cleansed on the inside, this is your moment. If you feel this tug or this pull on the inside of you, then all you need to do, listen, we, you don't have to complicate it. All you need to do is say, Jesus, come into my life. Yep. You know me better than I know myself. I am a sinner. Come into my life and we'll figure this out together. That's the walk of faith. It may mean for some of you accepting the things that you can no longer change or control. You, listen, the devil may have put a lock on you of what happened to you 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, Christ would never love me because of, and you name it. Really? If God can forgive somebody who's responsible for the death of their own child, you think he can forgive you? 
There is no sin too great that God cannot forgive. So here's what I'm thinking. If you want to receive Christ today, in just a moment, you just stand where you're at and I'll lead you in a prayer. But I also want to give two other invitations. The first invitation is to surrender. This time, unlike the first illustration I gave, you're not surrendering to an enemy, you're surrendering to a friend, the one who loves you the most. Sometimes we just need to surrender our expectations of the way we think life should turn out and deal with the reality of how it has turned out. So I'm just simply going to invite you in just a moment to come forward. And, you know, you're just going to have to kneel someplace along here. If you have a problem kneeling for whatever reason, you may just want to come to the front row. And, and all I'm asking you to consider doing is, is to surrender to Christ and to ask for peace because of something in your life that still controls you. You don't want to be destroyed. You don't want to be defined. You want to be developed. And the only way to development is through surrender. By surrender, we get peace. There's a third invitation. I'm going to invite forward at this time, there's three sets of people that are going to come forward. One's going to be over there in that corner. One's going to be right here in that corner. One's going to be right here. And they have anointing oil. Now, you see, in our church from time to time, although it's been two years because of COVID, today we're bringing it back. If you want to experience a healing physically, spiritually, emotionally, you just come to one of these people and they're going to put on, on your forehead oil in the sign of the cross and they're going to lay hands on you and pray over you. If you feel uncomfortable getting that close to somebody, then you just put your mask on if you brought your mask with you. But don't let this blessing go by. Okay, let's do the first of three invitations. The first is for those who feel on the inside this little heart palpitation that says, I, I don't know where I'm at with God. I'd like to invite Christ into my life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. If you would like to receive Christ into your life, stand right now. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else but to stand. And I just want to pray a prayer over you. I want to give that invitation. Yep, I see that person. Somebody else. All heads bowed. All eyes closed. Somebody else stand up. Yep. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You just pray this prayer underneath your breath. Now, there's nothing magical about this prayer. But if it's heartfelt, if you pray it with sincerity, I'll make you this promise. Jesus Christ will come in to your life. And if you let him, he'll change you for the better for eternity. 
So if you're standing or raising your hand, just pray this prayer after me. Jesus, it's me, fill in your name. I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I have this sense that I need to open my life to you. So I'm gonna do that right now. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I surrender to you because I'm surrendering to the one who loves me the most. Change my life. Forgive everything I've ever done that's wrong. I believe you are who you said you are. God's son. And I'm now confessing with my lips that you are Lord of my life. Come into my life. And I'm making you this promise. From this moment, I'm yours. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to walk into an unknown future with a known Savior. And I'm confident it's going to be good because you are.